The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Weighing the Evidence, Parsing the Practicalities, Integrating New Treatment Options into the SCLC Treatment Arsenal to Improve Patient Outcomes in Oncology Practice. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash PYK 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, I'm Dr. Jacob Sands. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where I lead our small cell lung cancer program, our clinical and clinical research program for small cell lung cancer. Welcome to this peer review educational activity focused on important treatment advances in small cell lung cancer and relevant implications for clinical practice. We're going to go all through a discussion about small cell lung cancer from the first line and beyond, uh, and I am looking forward to discussing this topic with all of you. So module one, we're going to focus on surveying the current state in the treatment of small cell lung cancer, key challenges, expanding therapeutic options, and current guideline recommendations. But let, first, let's start with diagnosing small cell lung cancer. Uh, this is diagnosed by a tissue diagnosis, like much of cancer. Most cancers follow the statement, tissue is the issue, and that's certainly true for small cell. There are standard immunohistochemical stains for the diagnosis. Uh, the majority of them express TTF1, and 75% express neuroendocrine differentiation with stains such as synaptophysin, CD56, and chromogranin. Small cell lung cancer has a very high mitotic rate. It is a transcriptionally active cancer, so it grows quickly. It's clinically aggressive as a diagnosis, and this is one of the challenges in treating it. We'll get to that when, we're, uh, particularly when we're talking about a second line and beyond, where it's really important to get responses to therapy. Now, the management of small cell lung cancer um, is challenging because of the aggressive uh, um, uh, the aggressive nature of the diagnosis. Uh, and so for historical context, a lot of survival curves that we see really have a pretty steep slope down. Uh, and this is certainly something that we still see uh, in, in some of our curves uh, today. So when looking at the barriers to treatment advances in small cell lung cancer, um, there are a handful of things. And they're outlined here on this slide, uh, smoking-related cancer, and therefore many of these patients have other comorbidities. Certainly, um, having some degree of lung function being affected with COPD uh, can, can be challenging because patients have less lung function and therefore as their tumor volume increases or challenges that, uh, as I mentioned, these patients can end up having an oxygen requirement earlier on. But on top of that, cardiovascular and other uh, comorbidities are certainly uh, um, can exist, particularly with a significant smoking history. The fact that it is rapidly progressive um, means that really any delays in getting started can be really detrimental. And so in many cases, we're, we're starting treatment as quickly as possible for small cell lung cancer. And in the second line setting and beyond, if there's a, if there's a treatment option that's not effective, um, then they really may lose the opportunity for other treatment options. And that's going to affect some of our discussion of second line and beyond treatment. The fact that there's limited um, tissue that is viable at the time of biopsies, there's often uh, in, in when we have biopsies, um, it's often that there's some necrotic tissue. And so the plentiful biopsies that we get in non-small cell lung cancer and other diagnoses are, are, are not always the case for small cell. Uh, and so we don't always, we don't have as much tissue for some of the preclinical work like what we get in non-small cell lung cancer. So this is a diagnosis that fortunately we have a nice 
rapid response in the first line setting, but second line and beyond gets quite a bit more challenging. And we're going to dive into some of the details of that. Um, looking at the tumor mutational burden, uh, the further out to the right you go in this chart, the, the higher the tumor mutational burden. And so you see melanoma all the way out there on the right. And melanoma is where we have really seen a lot of the immunotherapy uh, stuff start. Uh, and, and we get better responses in that. The further left we go, um, then we have decreasing mutational burden. But you see really non-small cell lung cancer is still quite a bit out there on the right uh, and small cell lung cancer as well. Now, small cell lung cancer has some very common genomic alterations as well, particularly P53 mutation and RB1 loss. And both of these, um, you see on the slide here what, what those genes normally do, uh, and they're essentially like breaks to the cell cycle replication process. And so when the DNA has multiple mutations in it, these help to halt that process to repair the DNA so in the process of replication, we end up with cells moving forward that do not have these different mutations. But when these are mutated, when we have RB1 loss, then um, it's kind of like the brakes being broken. MYC, on the other hand, is something that helps to push the, the process forward to activate uh, expression of genes that enable proliferation. And it's about 20% of small cell lung cancer has amplification of MYC. And in, in this case, it's kind of like the gas pedal being pushed down. So when you really have all these together, the brakes being broken, and in some cases, also the gas pedal being pushed down, th this is really uh, what further pushes these cells into such aggressive uh, uh, action. Now, when we look at the NCCN guidelines, uh, we see here, this is for limited stage disease. Limited stage disease the treatment is with curative intent. It's concurrent chemotherapy with radiation. And you'll notice here that with a performance status of zero to two or performance status of three to four even, using concurrent uh, chemo radiation is still the preferred if it is to uh, considered tolerable. Um, you'll notice that with uh, poor performance status, ECOG three to four is concurrent or sequential. Basically, sequential is if you really don't think the patient can tolerate concurrent therapy. But this is unusual. And a lot, of, uh, a lot of cancer diagnoses, when you have such a poor functional status, then you're really talking about more supportive care. But in this case, the diagnosis can be so rapidly progressive that even patients with a baseline good functional status can end up with a poor functional status. And it responds quickly enough to treatment that patients can also go from a poor functional status back to a good functional status fairly quickly. You'll notice there at the bottom, though, that a poor performance status that is not due to small cell lung cancer is where you're probably looking more towards supportive care. And I've had, um, it's rare, actually, where I have a patient with a new diagnosis of um, extensive stage small cell, let alone a limited stage, um, where we don't end up giving therapy. But one example is a patient of mine who had such poor um, COPD, really end-stage COPD, where she was in a wheelchair, she didn't feel like she could do much at baseline before ever getting a diagnosis of small cell. And in that case, she said, hey, I wasn't able to do enough to really have any quality of life before even getting di this diagnosis. And of course, that's a, a different scenario. But a strong point here is that this is curative intent treatment when you're looking at limited stage disease. Now, extensive stage um, is still, even with a performance status of three to four, um, giving systemic therapy, 
um, is, is something that 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 is that that can be done. Uh, the um, most extreme example I have is of a patient that actually I saw who was in the intensive care unit. He was intubated. Um, he'd actually been there for for more than a month because he had had a post obstructive pneumonia as an initial component of his diagnosis. And so he was there and, and getting antibiotics and got treated for that. Uh, and actually, I was consulted uh, more than a month into his time in the unit. He had a trach. He had a G-tube. Um, he wasn't really able to move his left leg at the time. He was really in about as poor performance status as one can have. But at, at his baseline, actually, had been a good functional status. But in this point, uh, really severely limited. And we had a discussion about his extensive stage small cell lung cancer. He had said he really wanted to go home for a day and then come back uh, even, which, of course, we said that's not really how this would go if, if he went home, given his uh, oxygen requirement and, and vent uh, status. Um, so he decided, OK, well, you know, uh, no promises, but I'll, I'll give it a shot and, and we'll see what happens. And, and actually, I treated him in the hospital. Uh, and for his uh, second cycle, he came in on a stretcher from a nursing facility, but was no longer on the ventilator. And. and uh, G-tube was was taken out and cycles three and four came in in a wheelchair. Um, and then uh, and after that was using a walker, but insisted he didn't need it. And he would walk around the office holding his walker up, but was walking miles a day um, um, and uh, and really got back to uh, his his prior life and his prior functional status. And, and it's exciting to see that in the first line setting. Um, and then second line and beyond is is quite a bit more challenging, but we'll get to that. You'll notice here um, it says combination systemic therapy and combination being platinum etoposide plus atezolizumab or platinum etoposide plus um, dervalumab. And, and we'll focus a bit more on that as well. Well, you'll see in the second part there, it's extensive stage disease plus localized symptomatic sites. And it gives some examples there. Um, now, radiation can be considered in some settings, but but the thing is that systemic therapy tends to work so quickly and so effectively that if I can get somebody started uh, on their systemic therapy, then often I'll, I'll, I'll try to do that. Um, spinal cord compression, you know, some of these uh, emergencies, you really have to weigh out the specifics of the scenario. Uh, and this is where it becomes a multidisciplinary effort. Um, now in the uh, relapse or, or second line and beyond setting, you'll see performance status there of zero to do. The two is, is subsequent systemic therapy or palliative symptom management. Um, palliative symptom management, these are not mutually exclusive, so it could say and or. Um, and, uh, and you see, um, uh, well, well, we'll get into some of the systemic treatment. I, I think what this is showing is just that there are other options. And so to continue those in patients with a, a, um, a functional status that allows for it. I will say that, you know, performance status three to four in this setting uh, by the guidelines really say palliative symptom management, uh, localized radiation, symptom control, not really including systemic therapy. Uh, but, you know, individual management, there are some patients where it does make sense to give them systemic therapy. And so it, it kind of depends on the patient in this, in this scenario. When looking at the specific systemic therapies, we see these here. Uh, the preferred regimens there at the top, uh, cisplatin etoposide. This is, sorry, this is for limited stage disease. Uh, cisplatin etoposide. There are two different dosings there, and that really is dependent upon whether you're doing radiation daily or radiation BID. 
When talking about extensive stage disease, the standard of care now is to include either atezolizumab or dervalumab. Uh, the way the studies were done, you'll see on here that atezolizumab is carboplatin and etoposide. With dervalumab, there's cisplatin or carboplatin and etoposide. Um, I tend to use carboplatin uh, in the extensive stage setting, and, and so um, uh, carboplatin, etoposide, and a checkpoint inhibitor. <clears throat> now, when looking at subsequent therapy, here we see a, a split on the NCCN guidelines. And on the left there is relapse in less than or equal to six months. And I should clarify that this is the chemotherapy-free interval. So this is the time from having completed the chemotherapy portion. If the patient is getting carboplatin etoposide and a checkpoint inhibitor, they might still be on the checkpoint inhibitor, but we're talking about the time since the last treatment with carboplatin etoposide. In less than six months, the preferred regimens are topotecan, either PO or IV. Should point out that the FDA approval for those is at a 45 or 60 day uh, chemotherapy free interval, respectively. Lurbanectidin uh, is more recent with an FDA approval in the second line setting, and that tr that comes from a 105 patient basket trial that did not have a limitation on the chemotherapy free interval, and therefore the FDA approval does not specify. And then also importantly, clinical trial and and the fact that clinical trial is a preferred regimen really highlights how challenging this setting is. We're going to go into the, some of the data of topotecan and lurbanectinin as well as others. Um, and, and although these are advances and although these are important uh, treatment considerations, you know, we'll also see that it's important to really try and develop, develop more options for patients. And there is certainly a need. And so clinical trial needs to be a strong consideration in the second line setting and beyond. Um, I'm going to jump over to the right side here of a relapse greater than six months. Again, this is chemotherapy-free interval. And, uh, and, in, and in that setting, retreatment with platinum etoposide. And here it says original regimen, but uh, at another point within the NCCN guidelines, if a patient is progressing on a checkpoint inhibitor, that checkpoint inhibitor is really not, not continued. So, um, so in this setting, going back to platinum etoposide is the recommendation. Now, there are other treatment options within this list that we're going to discuss. Uh, paclitaxel, we will, we'll, we will discuss. Arinotecan, um, I tend to use more than topotecan, and so that's another one for consideration. Temozolomide, particularly for uh, um, the fact that it crosses the blood-brain barrier, and so especially when there's CNS progression, that's a consideration. Now, nivolumab and pembrolizumab are also on this list, uh, and you'll see that down there. Despite the fact that both uh, of these drugs the initial FDA uh, applications were pulled based upon some negative studies. Uh, that being said, I think that these are still really important treatment considerations. And so for patients who have been treated for limited stage disease or for whatever reason didn't get a checkpoint inhibitor in the first line setting, this is, is, is certainly something to consider at later line settings. And we'll look at some of that data. Um, these drugs uh, unfortunately don't work for everybody. And it's a fraction of patients that really benefit but those who benefit um, can have really impressive, durable responses to, to treatment. And therefore, these need to be a consideration. Again, if a patient has been treated on a checkpoint inhibitor, these are not a consideration. And that is highlighted in the NCCN guidelines. But I want to make it very clear, uh, given what we're showing here with the slide. 
Now, in module two, we're going to explore the evidence supporting the use of current therapies, key ongoing trials, and promising emerging therapeutic approaches. Uh, and there's a lot to discuss here. So, first of all, going into the first line setting, we've already highlighted that inclusion of atezolizumab uh, or dervalumab with platinum etoposide is important. And we're going to discuss some of that data here. So, first of all, Atezolizumab was included in the Empower 133 trial, carboplatin etoposide with atezolizumab or a placebo. This was included for four cycles of chemotherapy with the checkpoint inhibitor and then maintenance with the checkpoint inhibitor or placebo. And um, within this trial, the median progression-free survival benefit was one month, which is, is not shown here, uh, but the two-month, uh, the, the median overall survival difference was two months. Now, this is where I think um, talking about the medians doesn't really highlight the true benefit from the drug. And so a median difference of one month progression-free survival in itself, I wouldn't say is particularly clinically meaningful. But the most meaningful thing about this is really looking out on the tail of the curve and the number of patients with ongoing disease control as we get further out. And we see that in, uh, on this overall survival curve as well here. We see a separation at 12 months going from 39% to 52%, then at 18 months from 21% to 34%. And so there's really a subset of patients that are getting particular benefit from this drug. And when looking at the safety data, fortunately, these checkpoint inhibitors have not added too much to the toxicity profile. And we see that within the immune-related AEs, certainly there is an increase. Um, you know, most patients really tolerate the therapy well. Um, and, and we do have people that need to stop the treatment due to the severity of rash or diarrhea or even pneumonitis, which is, is the one that particularly concerns me the most in this population of patients with um, uh, that often have poor lung function to begin with, as we mentioned. Now, looking at the uh, concurrent chemotherapy with Dervalumab study, this included, uh, one could choose either cisplatin or carboplatin, hence what we discussed earlier on the NCCN guidelines. Uh, this was a study that looked at uh, three arms. So it was chemotherapy plus dervalumab, uh, chemotherapy plus dervalumab and trimalimumab, or just the platinum etoposide itself. Um, now, the, the way that the study was done, we'll, we'll look at the curves, but the meaningful part really was the dervalumab plus platinum etoposide, and that is, in fact, what led to FDA approval. But you see this, this schema here. And here is the uh, two-year overall survival update. Again, we see separation of the curves. Now, um, there's not a, a formal analysis of, uh, that of the um, DERVA and TREMI, and so we're, we're not really discussing that within this setting. But you'll see that, that all three are there. And with the platinum etoposide plus Dervalumab, we do see a clear separation of these curves uh, as we get further out on the overall survival curves. It did lead to a two-month improvement in the median progression, uh, excuse me, in the median overall survival, there was no real difference in the median progression-free survival. But again, I'll make the point that the median is really probably not the right outcome to look at with these drugs uh, because uh, uh, there's not a dramatic difference in them. Uh, the median is something that, um, by definition, 50% of patients ha ha have had uh, less than, and 50% of patients have had more than that time point. Um, and as we get further out on the curve is where we really start seeing the the bigger separation of those in that these drugs really help to uh, have prolonged and durable uh, progression-free survival. 
And the patients that I've been following the, the longest with small cell lung cancer in many cases are people that, that really have had ongoing years of benefit uh, from a checkpoint inhibitor. And, and in some cases, these are patients that were included in clinical trials in the first-line setting and therefore really are truly years out. Uh, and in some cases, actually, these are patients in the second-line setting getting a checkpoint inhibitor, but we'll get to that setting. Uh, but it's an important point to make that with these immunotherapy drugs, um, it's not effective for everybody, and therefore the medians don't really tell the story. But those who have a response, this can be a home-run drug in those settings. And here we see the overall survival curve in the three-year update from Caspian. And this further highlights the point I'm making about the durability of responses. And we see out at three years, uh, a clear separation at 17.6 versus 5.8% uh, of survival. The safety data, similar to what we saw within the Empower 133 study, um, generally very well tolerated, uh, certainly an increase in immune-related AEs. But like I've said, in many cases, this is uh, tolerated. Patients can get, as I mentioned before, rash, diarrhea, or pneumonitis, uh, as well as, of course, there are others, but, but those are some of the more common and the more concerning. Uh, in most cases, that really just responds to a steroid, and in some cases, that can require a months of prolonged wean. Uh, but but uh, fortunately, that is uh, not the norm. And when that happens, in most cases, patients really do get better. And in many cases, I think I, I see patients rapidly get better once we start the steroid. Um, but these can be reasons to not be able to continue that checkpoint in inhibitor uh, further. And so if they've had a really severe reaction, then then, of course, that can lead to stopping the drug. I, I will mention within this, you see the, the tremolimumab. Um, this is a CTLA-4 inhibitor. We're not really diving into those outcomes, but you do see a, an increase further in the immune-related adverse events. And so just as far as a drug looking forward or a class uh, uh, in considering, um, this, I think, is one of the challenges. So for first-line uh, treatment, chemoimmunotherapy based on Empower-133 with the inclusion of atezolizumab and based upon Caspian with the inclusion of dervalumab both of them meaningfully increasing the median overall survival. Although really the point is actually out on the tail of the curve where we, where we see patients that really have long-term durability of the treatment. So now we're going to get into the second line therapy, and this is where things get a bit more challenging. So we've already discussed the NCCN guidelines here. Um, I will highlight again, we're going to dive into a bit on paclitaxel, a bit on arinotecan. We'll touch on temozolomide. Uh, and then the uh, single-agent pembrolizumab and nivolumab are only in the setting of not having previously gotten a checkpoint inhibitor. Of course, we'll also talk about the two FDA-approved therapies, being topotecan and uh, lurbanectidin, as well as looking at uh, repeating treatment with platinumatopside in those with a greater than six-month chemotherapy-free interval. Now, uh, this is a look at that, although I should point out that this trial itself was done in Europe. And so this was in patients with a greater than three-month uh, chemotherapy-free interval. And looking at platinum atopicide in that setting, uh, retreatment versus topotecan, we do see separation of the curves here, although this really did not uh, result in a, a significant overall survival difference. 
And so we see really a lot of over, uh, these, these curves are almost on top of each other uh, as far as overall survival. Now, Lurbanectidin, uh, more recent FDA approval in the second line setting. Uh, and this is, is a look at um, some of the, the mechanism of action. And we previously discussed that in small cell lung cancer with P53 mutation, RB1 loss, and 20% of patients having MYC amplification, this is a very uh, transcriptionally driven tumor, transcriptionally active cancer. Uh, and lurbanectidin binds to DNA promoters. Um, it, it, the binding of transcription factors is prevented, and it therefore leads to cell apoptosis uh, in that process. At the same time, it actually has a, 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 a mechanism within the tumor microenvironment as well, and it can result in apoptosis of tumor-associated macrophages, which are, uh, 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 at the first hand, sounds like it would be meaningful that you'd want immune cells there. But in fact, these tumor-associated macrophages actually lead to uh, increased angiogenic, uh, angiogenesis of, uh, of tumors um, and can actually end up inhibiting some of the responses in that setting, uh, as well as uh, angiogenesis, obviously, uh, leading to vascularization uh, of tumor. And so um, by, by uh, leading to apoptosis of these cells and clearing some of these cells from the tumor microenvironment, this may in fact have uh, an important therapeutic effect uh, in the treatment of small cell as well. Now, that's an area that requires further ongoing research, but, but another compelling uh, aspect to the mechanism. So in the second line setting, this is the Lancet Oncology publication that led to FDA approval. This uh, defined resistant versus sensitive disease as a greater than or equal to or less than 90 days uh, from the time of um, uh, completing last chemotherapy. That being said, all patients could enroll. There was no restriction on the chemotherapy-free interval. This was a 105-patient basket trial. It was a single-arm study. And when we look at the outcomes from that study, this is um, kind of a busy chart, so we'll put a box here to really focus specifically on the, the median progression-free survival as well as some, some cut points there. And you'll see that the uh, median uh, progression-free survival of the whole population was 3.5 months. Not surprisingly, uh, with lurbanectidin being a chemo agent, um, those who have more resistant disease did worse than those who had more sensitive disease. And we see that with a, a median progression-free survival in the resistant group of 2.6 months and in the uh, sensitive group of 4.6 months. Now, as I said earlier on, this really, I think, highlights the need for clinical trials and the fact that the median is still uh, quite short. And so not everybody is, is benefiting in a very durable way with this drug, but there certainly are those who, who, who are benefiting. And I think we see that best within the six-month progression-free survival. So a third of patients overall are getting at least six months of disease control, which I would argue is quite meaningful in this very challenging to treat disease setting. Only 19% of patients in the resistant uh, disease are experiencing that, but this is a, a diagnosis with a terrible prognosis. And to get six months of disease control in that setting, I would say is especially meaningful, but it's only 19% of patients that are getting that. On the other hand, in the sensitive setting, we're seeing about 44% of patients with ongoing disease control. So uh, six months, quite a few more are getting that durability in, in the uh, sensitive disease setting. 
uh, which is what we would expect. And I think it's quite meaningful in both of these, but does highlight um, the, the fact that we need to do more. Well, that being said, when we look at overall survival, this kind of fits uh, similarly as we would expect. And so the median being 9.3 months, five months in that very uh, challenging uh, resistant disease setting, and about a year in those with platinum sensitive disease. And we see that also in the 12 month uh, median or the 12 month overall survival being about a third of patients living a year and uh, 16% of patients in the resistant setting and 48% of patients in the sensitive setting. So following what we would expect, I think um, this is important treatment. And there's a subset of patients in each of these that are really getting some durability relative to the disease setting. Resistant disease is, is a horribly challenging setting. And I'll point out, you know, this is resistant disease being less than 90 days. Um, and the, the only other FDA-approved therapy is topotecan, which really was initially studied at the uh, 60-day cutoff, uh, and then with PO at 45 days. But to dive a little bit more into the outcomes with lurbanectin, we see here the duration of response. Um, and uh, note that the, um, the time points uh, on the bottom of these charts is not following the same scale. And so the shape of the curves uh, can be misleading if you're not looking at that. Um, but but this is uh, shows what we've just looked at, essentially. And then on the right, there is the swimmer's plot. Now, on the swimmer's plot, you'll see that on the left side of that swimmer's plot is where you can see that duration since the last uh, chemo. So the chemotherapy-free interval is there. So the, the patient at the top was 5.8 months. So this is the less than six-month chemotherapy-free interval with, in this case, 15 months of disease control. Uh, of course, that still fits in the, um, uh, that still fits in the platinum sensitive by definition in the trial, but it is less than the six months by what we talked about with the NCCN guidelines. And you'll see here in the light blue, these are those with the resistant disease, so less than, um, less than 90 days of chemotherapy-free interval. And, and the top one here is actually really less than a month. So this is a, a patient that wouldn't really fit the FDA approval for topotecan uh, that did get um, you know, a good nine months of disease control with lurbanectidin. Now, it would be misleading to pick out only the best cases and suggest that that's how it is for each patient. And of course, we do see patients further down within the swimmer's plot where, uh, where it's, it's limited as far as the duration of disease control. Uh, not all of these patients had progression. This was just the time point at, at, the, at the data cut. As far as safety, fortunately, lurbanectidin is generally well tolerated. I think there are a few things to highlight, um, one being the neutropenia. Um, so uh, a good percentage of patients really had grade three or four neutropenia. You see 21% grade three, 25% grade four. Fortunately, only 5% of patients had febrile neutropenia. I should also highlight that uh, this study did not allow primary GCSF prophylaxis. So, so that's something that certainly could be done in clinical practice, but was not done within the study. And had it been done, presumably that, that uh, neutropenia would have, would have been less. Um, the other one that, that in, for me is maybe a little more concerning, but fortunately far less frequent, is fatigue. And so I've highlighted that here. 
patients don't really feel neutropenia. Of course, they feel febrile neutropenia. Patients end up admitted to the hospital, and, and that was 5% of patients. But the, the patients that are having grade 3 or grade 4 neutropenia with no, no other complications don't feel that. But grade 3 fatigue uh, is something that they obviously do. And when I first saw this data, um, it seemed that, well, maybe this would be more patients who had progression on small cell because, of course, small cell lung cancer causes fatigue. Uh, and it's hard to know to what percentages these were, although, of course, you know, uh, um, this may have been attributed to the drug, but when you're treating a patient, it, it can be hard to know for sure sometimes. Uh, but it certainly is something that I've seen in practice. And, and in the worst case scenario, I had a patient who had a really nice response to the treatment, uh, but had such a degree of fatigue that we really had to hold the therapy. Um, and even withholding it, he really had another four months of ongoing disease control after having had really rapidly progressive disease. So I feel very confident that he was certainly benefiting from the drug and really had some durability even after stopping it. But, but the fatigue was severe enough that we really had to stop it. Now, although we've just talked about the data that was compelling that led to FDA approval of single-agent lurbanectidin, unfortunately, the Atlantis trial looking at combination lurbanectidin plus doxorubicin uh, was not a positive study. And this was, uh, you, you see the schema here, this was a comparison of do combination doxorubicin plus lurbanectidin to either topotecan or CAV. And... Um, the trial was a, a negative trial. I'll point out that the dose of lurbanectidin within this combination was less than what was used in the single agent uh, study, but of course was combined with doxorubicin. But, but I think suggests enough that there's not a synergy or certainly not enough synergy to, um, to, to be a reason to treat with that combination versus either topotecan or CAV. Uh, that being said, there are now further studies that are ongoing and others that are planned. Uh, I'll highlight the Lagoon study, which is evaluating lurbanectidin um, either as, uh, in combination with can or as a single agent. And then both compared to uh, uh, investigators' choice of topotecan or can. And this is in patients who've progressed with small cell lung cancer after prior platinum-containing chemo either with or without uh, a checkpoint inhibitor. There are uh, an array of other studies as well of lurbanectidin plus immunotherapies, and you see that uh, listed there on the bottom. Now, topotecan is uh, the longest-standing FDA-approved therapy, and as mentioned, there is a PO as well as an IV uh, uh, regimen, uh, and you see the dosing there. And these are the studies that led to approvals. We just talked about the lurbanectidin plus doxorubicin study that was uh, negative compared to either topotecan or CAV. And you can see on the right there, the FDA approval for lurbanectidin was, or excuse me, the FDA approval for topotecan came from a, a topotecan versus CAV study, in which case it was a negative trial. And those curves really are on top of each other, but the topotecan was better tolerated and therefore was approved. On the left there, you see topotecan PO versus best supportive care. And in this setting, um, this is from 2006, so it's actually quite recent to be a, uh, a study that has a best supportive care 
control arm. But I should point out that this is in patients with a worse functional status, and therefore that, that was why that was done. Uh, but this did lead to FDA approval uh, as well. Um, and we clearly see separation of the curves, uh, although um, we'd really like to see more separation in a study that's using best supportive care as the control arm. But this further highlights the, the very challenging uh, clinical scenario here. As far as the toxicities, you see here the oral topotecan as well as IV topotecan, um, and really cytopenias uh, are, are um, very common. Um, and, and we see not just neutropenia, but thrombocytopenia, anemia across the board. Um, diarrhea is more common in PO, not surprisingly. Uh, fatigue um, really occurring in both at about 6.5% of, uh, of patients having grade 3 fatigue. And now we're going to look at some other second-line options. I've mentioned that I tend to use arinotecan uh, rather than topotecan, actually. And so here, this is arinotecan, another topoisomerase 1 inhibitor. Uh, the mechanism of action is that it prevents re-ligation of the cleaved DNA strand, leading to DNA damage and cell death. Now, the data from these other studies is, um, this is older data. You see this is a publication from 1992. Uh, these are commonly used drugs. They're within the NCCN guidelines. They do not have an FDA approval. And the data from these older studies is, is quite limited in numbers. Uh, and so in this study, this was only 15 patients. You see that about half of them, seven patients, had a partial response. Uh, this included limited stage disease as well. Uh, and the median duration of response is reported in days, which, of course, highlights the very challenging scenario when we're talking about days. Um, but, uh, but it is well tolerated. And you see here on the right, the, the uh, side effect profile. With arinotecan, uh, I'll say, uh, you know, diarrhea, of course, is a unique uh, toxicity to arinotecan versus some of the other chemo agents. Um, this is one that uh, I think most patients tend to tolerate well, uh, but that, that is a unique side effect to look at. Now, paclitaxel, uh, paclitaxel's mechanism of action is that it binds to microtubules uh, and essentially preventing disassembly of them. And this is what inhibits cell replication, interfering with late G2 mitotic phase. And so ultimately that ends up leading to cell death. Um, and paclitaxel can be toast two different ways. One is by Q3-week dosing, and you see there the 175 milligrams per meter squared on the left. And on the right is weekly dosing for six weeks of an eight-week cycle. So six weeks on, two weeks off. And you see the outcomes here. Uh, I'll focus on the right because I tend to do more of the weekly dosing. And so this is 21 patients, 11 of them with platinum-sensitive disease and 10 with platinum refractory. Um, and you'll see that the partial responses, um, uh, excuse me, the response rate on the right there, so 20 to 27%, depending on refractory and sensitive disease, uh, as far as response rate. Uh, I find that particularly the weekly dosing is very well tolerated for patients. And, um, you know, as we get to this setting where not everyone's going to benefit, um, and when they don't benefit, the disease can be rapidly progressive and the prognosis is very poor, that using regimens that end up not causing much in the way of toxicity is uh, reassuring and that at least I'm less likely to be hurting somebody if the therapy is not working for them 
then certainly I'd hope to really not add much in the way of side effects if they're not getting, if they're not going to benefit from the drug. Of course, I prefer that everyone benefit from the drug and I wouldn't use a drug if I didn't expect a reasonable possibility of them truly benefiting from it and from it effectively treating their cancer. But unfortunately, in many cases, uh, that doesn't happen. And so to at least not cause toxicity uh, becomes more and more compelling in that case. Temozolomide is another one that's often well tolerated. As I mentioned, this uh, does have uh, a good penetration of the blood-brain barrier. Temozolomide is a pro-drug, and this rapidly converts to an active metabolite that essentially leads to DNA damage and apoptosis of the cells. The fact that it crosses the blood-brain barrier, to me, is really the most compelling part of this drug. But here we see a waterfall plot of um, of outcomes. And so, you know, similar to others, uh, it's not everybody that benefits from this drug, but there certainly are patients out there further on the right side where we see deep partial, partial responses and even one complete response was noted. This study uh, defined platinum-sensitive versus refractory based upon a two-month cutoff. And um, you'll note there on the right that that R in the chart is, is patients who were refractory. So um, some of these patients really having deep responses uh, despite having had platinum refractory disease. Now, the response uh, noted itself, of course, is not the full story. Uh, it's the durability of the responses that clinically matter most. And you see here, um, like we've seen with, with uh, all of the chemo drugs, really, is that those who are more platinum sensitive are more likely to have uh, um, some durability and some responses. Again, I'll point out that the scale is not the same on all of these charts. And so just looking at the, the shape of the curve in comparison can be misleading. Fortunately, temozolomide is generally very well tolerated. And more recently, there's a, a study looking at a five-day regimen as opposed to the 21-day regimen. And you see the dosing there at the top of the slide across the two of them and the toxicity as well. And the five-day uh, study, um, uh, one of the conclusions from that was that this is a better tolerated regimen and therefore uh, might be uh, more useful going forward. And I'll point out a couple things in this. Um, now, the, the outcomes are considered similar. Uh, and the response rate between them uh, within the set, the classic 75 milligrams per meter square per day for 21 days of 28, um, within that regimen, the response rate was 20%. Uh, within the five-day regimen, the response rate was 12%. Uh, but um, the number of patients with platinum-sensitive disease was a bit more plentiful in that 21-day um, dosing uh, uh, study. And so the, the classic dosing regimen did have patients that seem to probably be more likely to have responses as well. And so it's harder to know what to make of these differences. But I generally, uh, my practice is uh, more to use the classic dosing in patients where I'm not concerned about any issues of tolerating the regimen. Um, and in someone where I'd be more concerned about that, particularly the cytopenias really is the, the five-day a dosing. And now we're going to discuss some of the future directions. And one of those really is small cell subtypes. And the, the, this is um, looking at four different uh, uh, receptors we can see by staining ASCL1, NeuroD1, YAP1, and POW2F3. 
is uh, is is one. This is comes from uh, Dr. Charlie Rudin at Memorial Sloan Kettering. There's also a very similar uh, subtyping that was really proposed out of Dr. Lauren Byers' lab at uh, MD Anderson. And what this suggests is that um, what we've been categorizing as small cell lung cancer, we may actually be able to subcategorize, much like what we've done with non-small cell lung cancer, in that we now have squamous cell and adenocarcinoma. But with small cell lung cancer, this looks like it might also be a bit more fluid. And so it's not entirely analogous to non-small cell lung cancer. But what it may provide is a framework within which to take some of these novel therapies that are being uh, developed. And there may be subtypes that respond better to some of these different drugs. And so one example of this, which we'll discuss, is uh, PARP inhibitors, for example, uh, have shown some promising results, but the studies have been negative. Although when looking at Schlafen 11 expression, that really seems to be potentially a way of separating out these patients. And that was, is maybe a hint as to uh, subtyping. And so that is, that's one example. But of course, there are others, uh, uh, other novel therapies that look like uh, they may respond better to other subtypes. At the same time, um, with the advent of immunotherapy and this immunotherapy revolution, um, that has really altered the lives of, of some of our patients. Um, we're now looking at how, how, what are some other scenarios in which we can incorporate this. And so at the top there, you see incorporating with thoracic radiation. Um, and so this is really patients uh, with metastatic disease where they're getting some immunotherapy, but also getting radiation for it. Uh, and this is um, really an effort at uh, enacting an abscopal effect which is um, really to increase uh, some of the markers from the cancer with the radiation and then enhance an immune response that would really lead to an impact at other sites that are not radiated. And so this is, is a concept that, that is being further evaluated. At the same time, taking immunotherapy, which we know works so well in the metastatic setting and incorporating that in the limited stage setting where our goal is a treat of treatment is to cure the diagnosis. And so um, there's a, an incorporation of immunotherapy with the chemo radiation uh, as a potential way of improving uh, in that setting. Much like what we've seen within non-small cell lung cancer, the, these checkpoint inhibitors initially in the second line and then first line, and then we've seen it incorporated with um, concurrent chemo radiation and uh, immunotherapy. And now, of course, there are adjuvant and neoadjuvant studies. And within small cell lung cancer, we're really seeing this uh, incorporated into earlier stage settings as well. And uh, relevant to my comment earlier about PARP inhibitors, this is SWOG1929. This is a phase two study of maintenance, maintenance atezolizumab versus atezolizumab plus the PARP inhibitor telezoparib. Um, and per my comment earlier as well, this is looking at Schlafen 11 positive. Now, PARP inhibitor studies in small cell lung cancer, as I've mentioned, have a hint of uh, benefit, uh, but really overall have been negative trials, unfortunately, in the past. Uh, but when separating out those with Schlafen 11 expression is where we're really seeing what looks like a subset that is most likely to benefit. And this, this study particularly separates out that population. Now, we've discussed the PARP inhibitor plus immunotherapy. Uh, this is also looking at 
liposomal arenatecan. And so there is data uh, that's that's compelling with liposomal arenatecan, which is also well tolerated. Another one is bispecific T-cell engager. Um, uh, and, and these are drugs that really bind to DLL3 as well as binding to CD3, which is on T-cells. So it's essentially pulling the immune system together with the, the cancer cells uh, and creating a greater immune response. And so there's been some early data that has been quite compelling. Um, and then CAR-T uh, is kind of next line. And we don't yet have a lot of data. Uh, and this certainly CAR-T is something being, that's being done in other cancer types and has really been an exciting technology. Um, and so uh, th there's quite a bit more work, I think, before we really get to the point of utilizing CAR-T. And there are some early studies uh, in lung cancer, including a small cell lung cancer, but quite a bit more work to do. Now, this is going back to the uh, bispecific T-cell engager. Uh, this is AMG757. Uh, this is the drug that binds DLL3 as well as CD3. And I mentioned we have some early data that's quite compelling. And so we see that here um, uh, with the, the waterfall plot uh, there on the right. Uh, these are, are patients that are, um, uh, we see an array of dosing. This, this was early studies, uh, but a number of patients with responses. The, the drug itself has been pretty well tolerated. This is something that has initially required hospitalization to really look for uh, um, cytokine release syndrome. And, and of course, that's the toxicity to really uh, look for. And you'll see there on the, on the top left, that toxicity mostly was uh, cytokine release syndrome. Uh, and unfortunately, most patients that have had any degree of that um, have uh, gotten over that. Um, and so this is one of the studies, uh, but there are other drugs also binding um, CD3 and, uh, and DLL3. And I think we'll see more of this class uh, with time. So now we're gonna go into module three, parsing the practicalities and really look at tailoring a strategy for patients. We've talked about broad data, and now we're going to kind of dive into more specific scenarios and what we would choose for individual patients and, and providing individualized care. That's a hard thing to really do within a, a broad talk, obviously. So we'll talk about clinical scenarios. So let's start with this one. 58-year-old woman with a past medical history of 60 pack years. Uh, presenting to primary care with a two-month history of persistent cough and generalized fatigue, performance status of one, chest x-ray showed a left upper lung opacity, uh, CT scan was then done, which also showed uh, a mass, as well as hyalur adenopathy. Bronchoscopy was done, showed small cell lung cancer. Fortunately, MRI of the brain was negative, and PET-CT showed only the lung mass along with the adenopathy. So fortunately, this is Limited stage disease, of course, that does require radiation oncology evaluation uh, and consideration, but I think we can presume that this would fit within a radiation field and therefore be a, a treatable limited stage diagnosis. And in fact, this patient was treated with concurrent cisplatin etoposide and radiation. Now, there's one component of this case that I'm going to kind of uh, step to the side now and dis to discuss separately. And that really is um, that 60 pack year smoking history is really just to highlight that this is this is a classic small cell lung cancer, or if, or 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 rather, if the patient did not have any smoking history, then I would treat this 
uh, as a potential consideration of a non-small cell lung cancer, in which case patients should get genomic testing. Now, that's particularly important in the metastatic setting when, with patients who have extensive stage disease. If they, have, if they have no smoking history or a very limited, very distant smoking history, then it's NCCN guidelines supported, and I'd strongly recommend getting uh, genomic testing. Within non-small cell lung cancer, uh, we do next-generation sequencing. That's a separate uh, a topic in itself, but, uh, but I would strongly advocate for next-generation sequencing uh, in small cell lung cancer as well in a patient without a smoking history. And in fact, I have diagnosed patients uh, with specific alterations that are targetable that then had responses to treatment. Um, and in one case with a patient who later on needed a biopsy again for something, uh, and so we biopsy the liver. And despite having initially at the time of diagnosis uh, talked with pathology saying this is an odd scenario and pathology really saying this is this absolutely under the microscope clearly looks like small cell lung cancer, that future biopsy really clearly did not look like small cell lung cancer. And so it certainly had neuroendocrine differentiation, but at that point was more of a non-small cell, in which case, um, in that setting, it really does require genomic testing. And so um, uh, that's a very important consideration. In this case, has the smoking history, small cell lung cancer, um, and, and classically looks like it, we'll just say, based upon the diagnosis. So concurrent chemoradiation um, does well but unfortunately, eight months after completing treatment, uh, had a recurrence in liver and bones. Still a good performance status. Let's say she's asymptomatic uh, at that time as well. So the question is, what would you recommend for this patient? And here's a, a list of options. Um, Carboplatinotoposide retreatment, uh, but including atezolizumab or dervalumab, lurbanectidin, topotecan, uh, or pembrolizumab or nivolumab as single agents. Now, this is a complicated one that actually, uh, I think, um, makes for really great discussion. And in this setting, I'm giving a talk, so I'm going to kind of play the multiple parts of that discussion. But as far as a thought process that I have, um, in this setting, it is eight months. Um, I don't really think of it in the same way as someone who's had extensive stage disease that's treated with platinum atoposide and is now eight months. This is someone who also had radiation. Um, so uh, although in this setting, the recurrence really is in liver and bones. So it is in distant sites. It's not in the area that was radiated. Um, uh, if you have recurrence in the area that's radiated um, even earlier, that becomes a, a particularly worrisome from a pro prognostic standpoint. Um, but in this setting, um, platinum sensitive disease based upon the time frame. Um, so NCCN guidelines would say retreatment with platinum atoposide. At the same time, the patient never got a checkpoint inhibitor. And I will make the point that I, I, absolutely everybody who, who qualifies, people who, uh, certainly there are cases where patients cannot get a checkpoint inhibitor. Um, although I think those are quite rare, actually. Um, uh, if they haven't gotten a checkpoint inhibitor, that should be incorporated. And so in this setting, you're really doing both of those. They're getting their platinum atoposide. They're also uh, getting a checkpoint inhibitor. Another option would be lurbanectidin, FDA-approved, second-line therapy, uh, and certainly justifiable. Generally, pretty well tolerated. Um, we've seen the, the data on this. The, the response rates 
I would say are uh, better than what we've seen in immunotherapy alone. Uh, although the durability of those who have a response is not the same as those who have a check, checkpoint inhibitor alone. Um, but, uh, uh, but is a viable option, is an approved option. Third would be topotecan, uh, another FDA-approved option. Um, I will say that uh, I tend to not use uh, topotecan and rather uh, prefer arinotecan. In this setting, I don't think I would be using either of those. But, but if topotecan was a consideration in my mind, I would end up using arinotecan instead. Uh, and then pembrolizumab or nivolumab, these are not FDA-approved options. Um, these, this initially had an FDA approval, although the application for that was pulled um, when each of these drugs was incorporated in the first-line setting but had uh, studies that were negative. That being said, uh, the curves for these drugs look similar to the ones uh, that were approved. They, they narrowly missed the median uh, cut point, which I've said I don't think is the right uh, way of really highlighting the benefits of these drugs. And in fact, actually, nivolumab, there was a first-line trial that in fact was positive, although that was not a registrational trial. Um, and in either case, um, in this setting with more, with, with more than six months out, uh, if the patient tolerated platinum atoposide well, I would be more inclined to use the first regimen of platinum atoposide plus either atezolizumab or dervalumab uh, as, uh, as really like the next first-line therapy for extensive stage disease. If the uh, chemotherapy for interval was shorter, if we say that this occurred three months after finishing concurrent chemo radiation, then the question is, well, uh, I wouldn't really give retreatment with platinum atoposide in that setting. I wouldn't expect much from that. I think you're really just adding toxicities without benefit. But now, if you're using Pembro or Nevo, these are not FDA-approved options as single agents. Um, if the patient has a limited volume of disease, then I may consider that in this setting. Like I said, uh, patients who really get a nice response to these drugs, um, they get, in some cases, really impressive durability. And so the uh, study with pembrolizumab um, showed a response rate of 19%, but more than half of those patients with ongoing disease control at two years. Similar data with nivolumab as a single agent, uh, uh, limited numbers uh, that have a response, but um, amongst those who have a response, really uh, uh, an impressive percentage that have durability to that response. And so if I can use an analogy, I really liken this to kind of swinging for a home run. With, with the checkpoint inhibitor, you're swinging for the fences. And when you connect, um, the, then you can get that home run. The problem is that the majority of patients don't get that benefit. And this is where really our, our study, some of the, the immunotherapy studies that, that I, I mentioned earlier are really ways of trying to get that kind of home run for more patients. But unfortunately, the majority of patients don't get that benefit. So if you have somebody with more volume of disease where you feel like they really need some kind of response to therapy, if you're using that single agent Pembro or Nevo, the majority of patients are not going to get that benefit. And unfortunately, you can lose the opportunity for any further therapy. And so this is where some of the other drugs that have a higher percentage of likelihood of response um, may end up being preferred as a way of trying to get some benefit to that and then hopefully being able to use one of the, one of the checkpoint inhibitors 
uh, later on down the line. Now let's talk about a different case. We're going to switch to the extensive stage setting. So we're going to presume that patients were treated initially with, with platinum atovacide plus a checkpoint inhibitor. Uh, this is a patient that, that presented with shortness of breath, um, ultimately had a scan showing a mass with mediastinal adenopathy, liver metastases, MRI brain showed no evidence of disease. Patient was initially treated with topocyte plus atezolizumab for four cycles, then had eight months of maintenance atezolizumab. So chemotherapy-free interval of eight months uh, based upon that before the CT scan showed new bone metastases and progression of other sites as well. So the question now is how to treat this patient with uh, platinum-sensitive disease uh, and a chemotherapy-free interval of eight months. Now, if we uh, uh, look at FDA-approved therapies, you see on the left here, topotechian and lurbanectidin are both FDA-approved therapies. Um, if we presume that this patient had prophylactic cranial irradiation and the MRI brain at the time of recurrence shows no evidence of disease, um, then there's not a concern uh, about the CNS progression. So we're talking about systemic treatment. Um, Topotechian and lurbanectidin both FDA-approved. Uh, I've, I've mentioned that in, for me, uh, um, I would tend to use arinotecan rather than topotecan due to tolerability. Although more recently, uh, lurbanectidin has, has been the drug I've used more commonly. Uh, as I mentioned, side effect profile is quite good. Um, certainly neutropenia is something that you have to watch for. Uh, although the trial, as I mentioned, did not allow for primary GCSF prophylaxis, I don't use that in everybody either. But in patients who I'm particularly concerned about neutropenia, I would then use uh, GCSF prophylaxis. Now, if we um, switch this up and say that the patient uh, at the time of recurrence has multiple brain mats, uh, despite having previously gotten prophylactic cranial irradiation. And unfortunately, this is a challenging setting that we see. Uh, patients who have had their brain radiated and now have brain metastatic recurrence in the brain, we're trying to re-irradiate becomes a challenge. Now, we, we have a study here where radiation oncology will do SRS or focused radiation, but if there are multiple sites, then that really isn't feasible. And so now we're talking about how can we give them a systemic therapy that's going to work in the brain? And this is really the setting that I think temozolomide is the most compelling for. Uh, there is good CNS penetration. This drug doesn't work for everybody. But the good thing is that it is generally pretty well tolerated. And so cytopenias may occur and fatigue may occur. And these are things that I would generally watch for. Uh, but most patients really tolerate the drug without significant toxicities. And so uh, as far as trying to get CNS control with systemic therapy, this is really probably the best option. Some of the other drugs we've discussed can also have an impact. But um, the, the uh, crossing of the blood-brain barrier is not as significant as like what we see with temozolomide. In the setting of somebody who's gotten prophylactic cranial irradiation um, and has multiple new brain mets with a chemotherapy-free interval of just one month, um, that uh, really is uh, one of the most challenging settings because this is a uh, very resistant, uh, a very challenging disease. They've already been radiated. Uh, and in this setting, um, using temozolomide uh, is, again, it, it, it kind of the one 
that I would reach for as a way of trying to get CNS control. But with this kind of uh, a setting, I think the prognosis is really quite poor. And so this is somebody you'd really have to watch very closely. Now we're going to talk about a different patient. This is, uh, uh, um, you see here, uh, Miss S, a 70-year-old woman, uh, treated with first-line platinum atobicide plus a checkpoint inhibitor, had a chemotherapy-free interval of about six months, and then treated with lurbanectidin. Uh, and now has um, some uh, uh, control with lurbanectidin um, and then has progression after lurbanectidin. And so what would be some other treatment options uh, for this woman? Now, we're not really diving into specifics in this case because we're, we're discussing kind of a broad framework of what to use in the third line and beyond. And so some of my thought process, I've already highlighted quite a bit the the whole CNS aspect. And so we're going to assume she does not have CNS progression, um, but has has received a checkpoint inhibitor and clearly had progression on a checkpoint inhibitor, which means that there would be no benefit to giving other checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, after lurbanectidin, of course, there is topotecan, which is FDA approved. Uh, I've mentioned that I would tend to use arinotecan, uh, a preference uh, of mine, as far as tolerability. Um, other agents like paclitaxel weekly uh, has uh, um, less toxicity and therefore would be an option. Um, uh, temozolomide I've discussed before, but it's not what I would reach for unless there was really a CNS-specific reason to do so. So paclitaxel can cause neuropathy if that was something where she previously had that or that was something I was concerned about, then I would not use paclitaxel. Arinotecan can cause diarrhea. Um, neither of those really end up being severe for the majority of patients. These certainly can be, but it's not that those toxicities are necessarily a big concern for me, for me but more so uh, that if the patient had something that made it a concern, then, then maybe I would be less inclined to use it. So paclitaxel neuropathy, arinotecan, diarrhea, temozolomide, um, really I would reach for more just if there was an issue with CNS in particular. So some final takeaways uh, in conclusion. In the first-line setting of extensive stage disease, very clearly the standard of care is platinum atopicide plus atezolizumab or dervalumab. And um, this is a way of swinging for the fences, as I've described with a checkpoint inhibitor, while also getting the chemotherapy that has a very high response rate. And um, this first-line setting, by including checkpoint inhibitors, that we've really seen a significant impact to the tail of the curve. And that's where we're really seeing the most benefit in that setting. At the time of progression, the chemotherapy-free interval is very important as far as uh, prognostic significance. But also, if it's more than six months, a chemotherapy-free interval, platinum atopicide is a consideration, retreatment, uh, and in fact, is the NCCN guidelines recommended treatment. If the chemotherapy-free interval is less than six months, the FDA-approved therapies are topotecan or lurbanectidin, both of which we've discussed. We've also discussed next-line considerations of paclitaxel, arinotecan, each as single agents, in the setting of CNS metastases that cannot be treated with radiation, certainly temozolomide is a consideration in that setting. And only in patients never previously treated with a checkpoint inhibitor should pembrolizumab or nivolumab be considered per the NCCN guidelines. At the same time, 
the um, in, in patients with a less than six month chemotherapy free interval, the NCCN guidelines also recommend consideration of clinical trial. And I would say, really, this is a strong consideration to make really throughout small cell lung cancer, because this is such a challenging diagnosis. And so when we're second line and beyond, these patients in general have a poor prognosis. And unfortunately, uh, the disease can be very difficult to treat. There are an array of clinical trials that are happening. We've discussed some of them, but this is really just touching on multiple new novel therapies. And hopefully this new uh, um, proposed small cell lung cancer subtyping, hopefully that will provide a further a foundation upon which to really select out which patients may benefit most from some of these developing novel therapies. The ongoing research in small cell lung cancer continues to be overwhelmingly important. And with that, I thank you all for attending this, and it was a pleasure to give this talk to you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash PYK 860. This program is supported by an independent medical education grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals.